Chapter 78 Annaba The Great News What are they asking each other about? The Quran is divided into 30 parts of equal length, called Juz. Chapter 78 is the first chapter of the last Juz. This verse begins with Amma, which is a combination of the words An and Ma, meaning concerning what, followed by the imperfect tense Yetasa'aluna, denoting what is it that people have continuously been inquiring about. About the great news. The chapter is inaugurated with a subject, great news, about which people disagree and is unknown to many who have questions. It refers to the hereafter, a subject of which we have no first-hand knowledge and, moreover, is an event that is supposed to occur sometime in the future. The great news on which they continue to disagree with you or among themselves. What happens in the hereafter cannot be answered by experimental science in a lab using empirical data. Therefore, science has nothing to say related to the mystery of future events or a metaphysical concept like God. Instead, one has to ponder on God's signs in nature and our rational faculty in order to gain an understanding of God, prophethood, and the hereafter. It is not so, i.e., for them to remain in this state of not knowing and disagreement. Soon they will find out. Verse 4 proclaims this fact, and the next one repeats it for emphasis. We say it again that it is not so, but they will soon come to know the truth about it. They will soon come to understand, even though some reject it, while others have doubts about it. Have we not made earth a resting place? Verses 6 to 16 enumerate God's signs in nature, inviting humanity to reflect upon these signs that point to its existence. Instead of engaging us in rational, philosophical, theological, or mystical discussions. This verse poses a question. Have we not appointed earth as a cradle for you, a place where you can rest? Rocking a cradle quiets children and puts them to sleep. Likewise, earth is also in constant motion. However, it was not always a tranquil place, because for millions of years it was covered with water and vast floods prevented it from sustaining any life at all. When the water receded and dry land appeared, volcanoes, earthquakes, and constant shifting of its outer layer continued to make life impossible. Moreover, Earth had not yet acquired a protective shield, atmosphere, to deflect life-killing cosmic radiation and ultraviolet rays. In short, Earth had to evolve for millions of years before it could support any type of life at all. And the mountains as pegs to keep Earth stable. Earth's outer layer is no more than a solid, 
yet very thin, crust. If we envision it as an apple, then its outer layer is as thin as an apple's skin that covers the thick, inner molten part of the fruit. This outer layer, formed of constantly moving tectonic plates, is anchored by mountains that peg outad it to the inner layers and thus prevents slippage. Of course it took millions of years for the planet's solid crust to calm down, after which mountains were created to peg them in their place. Created you in pairs, male and female. For millions of years only plants existed, each of which contain both male and female reproductive organs. Algae, considered to be the first species that was sexually differentiated, and thus mating began to appear about two billion years ago. As a result, process of mutation and evolution sped up because algae enabled the transferal of mating information through DNA. The plant kingdom's rapid evolution eventually caused the animal kingdom to appear. Thus the cycle of creation is as follows. Solid crust, dry land, mountains, asexual reproduction, plants, sexual differentiation, and finally mating. Through mating, animals appeared in the following order. Fish, amphibians, birds, and finally mammals. Humanity is the last member of creation and... As such, all of these evolutionary phases were stepping stones to its creation. This is why the Quran states that humanity should ponder on the origin of its life. Made your sleep a source of rest. Sleep is the source of subat, repose, comfort, and rest. In its absence, if one were to work ceaselessly, then he would rapidly become old and decrepit. We spend approximately one-third of our lives asleep. But since it occurs automatically and effortlessly, we do not pay attention to its importance or appreciate the magnitude of this blessing. During work and other activities, we build up toxins in our bodies that make us tired. God created sleep so that we could recuperate and replenish our strength. While asleep, we are totally unaware of the moment-by-moment -moment activities of our hearts, brains, and other organs, and can do nothing to affect their working. Made the night as a cloak. We made night a cloak for you. The Quran uses this metaphor to indicate that night is like a covering that we use to rest. If it did not exist, we would have worked during any portion of the 24-hour period. However, God created night in nature to let our body know that it is time for us to slow down and ultimately stop our activities and moreover, the brain is tuned to function differently during the day than it is during the night. Likewise, the rise of daylight signals to our system that we can begin working 
and start our daily activities. And made the day for seeking livelihood. Daytime was created for people to earn their livelihood. The Quran frequently calls our attention to the phenomena of day and night to inform us that Earth's creation and, ultimately, that of humanity was orderly and executed with great care and precision. Have we not built over you seven strong earthly heavens, skies? One of the verses to talk about Earth's atmosphere, these brief remarks point to the seven skies. Other verses explain their roles and functions. For example, chapter 41 verse 12 says that God revealed to each earthly heaven its function and role and that these seven skies have their own specific relationship with the planet's seven layers. For example, the highest sky, magnetosphere, and the deepest crust are in a synchronous rotational movement that brings electromagnetic forces into existence. Is it not amazing how God protects Earth against ultraviolet and cosmic rays? Have you ever wondered what causes oxygen, hydrogen, and other essential gases to stay within the atmosphere? This verse underscores the importance of the protective shield that surrounds Earth, for without it, life could not have existed on this planet. And placed amidst them a blazing lamp, the sun. The lamp, which is ever glowing and full of blazing splendor, Wahaja, mentioned here, is the sun, which has two properties, gravity and radiation. The sun not only provides Earth with light, but also with the energy and light waves it needs for its sustenance. Have we not sent water pouring down from the clouds? Mu'asirat, referring to condensed clouds and their water-bearing nature. This verse and the previous one are related. Earth heats up as the sun shines on it and the ensuing difference of temperature in the upper atmosphere creates the wind that carries moisture from the oceans and seas and distributes millions of tons of water in the form of rain all over the planet. This is why the verse calls upon us to reflect on how the sun and condensed clouds work in tandem to produce abundant rain that, in turn, promotes the growth of vegetation, three of which are explained in the next two verses. To produce thereby grains and vegetables. Rain brings forth grains and plants, which are essential food sources and have nutritional value and health benefits for both human beings and animals. And luxuriant gardens. Rain also helps create dense gardens and orchards. In conclusion, verses 6 to 16 discuss the process that transformed a hostile earth into a planet that is most suitable for life. The Quran invites us to open our eyes to nature and reflect 
upon its self-evident truths, namely the change of seasons, day and night, the miracle of sleep, and so on. By doing so, we may realize that these ongoing processes are only stepping stones to a grand transformation. The Quran's implied questions in this context seem to be, why would you think that such a process would suddenly stop? Why would you think that all of it would end with your death? Do you not see that everything in this world is in constant motion and moving toward growth and perfection? Surely the day of decision, separation from earth and distinction between truth and falsehood, has been set and fixed. Beginning with this verse, the theme changes from highlighting natural phenomena to justifying the truth of the hereafter, and that we can see the signs of its coming in nature. The phrase, Yawmul Fasl, means the day of separation. Just as nature goes through seasonal changes, humans also go through a process of change that ends in ultimate detachment. For example, a fetus leaves the womb, separating itself from one stage of life by stepping into this world in order to enter another stage of life. Another season occurs on the day we leave earth to begin our journey toward the hereafter. This day of separation from earth and the day of distinction between truth and falsehood is similar to the ending of one season and the beginning of another. The day when the trumpet is blown and you will come in crowds. The Quran uses the metaphor of a trumpet to declare that we will be ordered to convene on that day. Just like soldiers being summoned to gather in formations by reveille to usher in a new state of affairs in the world. In other words, the trumpet signals everyone that another phase is about to begin and that it is time for them to head for the place of assembly. And the heavens will open and turn into gates. It is important to note that this verse describes the event that will unfold after the skies fall apart and the existing order is destroyed as the result of a natural order nearing its end. Earth's protective atmosphere and its geomagnetic shield will be unsealed, thereby enabling ultraviolet, cosmic rays, as well as asteroids and comets to attack our planet. Today's scientific community, understandably, has raised the alarm about the health danger of a comparatively small hole in the ozone layer of the atmosphere. Just try to imagine what a catastrophe will be unleashed when this protective shield no longer exists. And the mountains will vanish like a mirage. The removal of this protective shield will cause mountains to shatter and turn to dust, for at that time the planet will come under the influence of a far stronger electromagnetic force. In other verses, the Quran says that the mountains will be scattered 
like fluffed up wool. And Hell lies in ambush, making observations. The Quran uses the metaphor of an observation post because on that day, all human deeds will be observable from Hell, a destination for the rebellious. The human soul becomes sick and diseased when one engages in behavior that violates the natural order. On that day, the lifestyles of these rebels and transgressors will turn out to be their own worst enemy. Their transgressions intensified their soul's sickness and pushed them further down a slippery slope until they ended up in hell. One in which they will stay for ages. The Quran deliberately uses metaphorical language to describe that which is beyond human knowledge and mental perception. Even though the metaphors are addressed to a small Arab community that lived 1,400 years ago in a specific cultural milieu, the universality of their meaning transcends these boundaries. And taste therein nothing cool or drink. The thought of drinking cold water in the desert is always a pleasant experience, whereas the thought of drinking boiling water is not. Nothing but boiling and putrid fluids as a recompense. The Quran uses these metaphors to impress upon us that life in hell will be extremely harsh and utterly miserable. A fitting reward proportional to their evil deeds. The torment that one will experience in hell is the consequence of, and in proportion to, one's actions. Thus, no one can say that God is being unfair or unjust. For they did not anticipate a reckoning. Firmly believing that they would never be held accountable, they pursued their evil deeds without a second thought. If people even remotely suspected that such a day would actually arrive, they might have thought twice before committing the kinds of atrocities that we see being committed around the world. It is they, the dwellers of hell, who cause their own downfall and end up there. And thus emphatically rejected our signs and called them lies. They considered God's signs, like the world's orderly nature, and that their actions having consequences, false and defiantly rejected them. Because admitting their existence would mean that they would also have to affirm God's existence. But we have recorded everything in a book. As nothing is hidden from Him who is omniscient, He will evaluate all deeds with perfect accuracy and fairness. So taste the fruits of your evil deeds, for we'll not give you more of anything but punishment. Note the usage of we instead of I. This refers to the system and order that govern the world, not to God personally. That is to say, the very system that governs the world ensures that people are rewarded or punished appropriately.
Surely, for the God-conscious, there is a supreme achievement. In contrast to the dire condition of the rebels and transgressors in hell, the God-conscious and virtuous people will experience a life of bliss and joy in paradise. Foes, a common term in pre-Islamic Arabia, means reaching one's destination successfully and mafaza was used to refer to the desert. A person who had successfully traversed the desert and arrived at the intended destination safely was known as Fayez, one who has successfully attained the goal. The Quran likens this world to a treacherous desert. The only way to traverse it safely is to follow the guidance of the messengers, prophets, and the scriptures. Dangers are lying in wait at every corner to lead us away from the straight path. This verse states that on the day of resurrection, only those who had lived a God-conscious life will attain salvation. Private Gardens and Vineyards They will possess lush gardens, hada'iq, in paradise. Grapes are mentioned because they are an energetic fruit containing large amount of sugar and protein. As already pointed out, the Quran invokes metaphors and expressions that were appropriate for the people to whom it was revealed. However, symbolic meaning of something pleasant, soothing, and highly nutritious is eternal in relevance and transcends all artificial boundaries of culture, history, ethnicity, locality, and so on. Full-bosomed companions of equal age The adjective kawa'ib is gender-neutral. The Quran invokes another blessing of this life as an analogue in order to give us a limited sense of the pleasures awaiting those who lived a God-conscious life. This type of language, one to which we can relate, seeks to encourage us to pay more attention to the hereafter and get our affairs in order. The Quran always employs the indefinite form when describing these blessings to signal that these representations are offered only to help us understand that realm, not to represent its reality. And an overflowing cup. Those who have lived a God-conscious life will be in a state of abundant joy and pleasure, for their cup will be filled in accordance with and in proportion to their deeds. The pleasures of this temporal life are few and far between in comparison to the everlasting and boundless ones awaiting us there. Eminent mystics have used such Quranic terms of worldly pleasures in their poetry and prose. They will hear no vain talk and lies therein. It is aggravating to have to associate with people who use offensive language and lie, because it negatively impacts one's quality of life, even if one is blessed with the best of what life has to offer. In general, all of us would like to surround ourselves with decent people 
whose words are measured, useful and soothing, for such companionship is fruitful. Compatibility in this matter could be a source of spiritual growth and movement toward perfection. For it is a reward from your Lord, an ample and a fitting gift from. God rewards us with bountiful gifts in accordance to our deeds. His promises and warnings inform us that these will be bestowed upon us according to a fair and equitable system. Just as we are ranked on the basis of a specific criterion here, so will we be ranked in the hereafter. The Lord of the heavens and earth and everything between. The Merciful One, whom none will be able to address. The Lord, Rabb, is the nurturer and sustainer, the provider and ruler of the world. When compared with the universe, our planet Earth is not even the size of a grain of sand. Given that He is the absolute authority of the infinite universe, can you imagine how easy it would be for Him to manage our affairs? Do humans think that their existence really ends with death and that there is no hereafter? God's essence is compassion, ar-Rahman, and it is due to this attribute that we will be resurrected to a new life. The verse clearly shows that the Lord is the only judge on that day, that He will determine everyone's fate according to a just and equitable formula, and that no one will be in a position to challenge His authority. The day when the Spirit and the angels will stand in rows. None of them will speak, except the one who receives the merciful one's permission to do so, and who says what is right. This verse seems somewhat intricate and complicated. What does the Spirit and the angels will rise connote? What is Spirit, and how is it different from angels? What does none will speak mean? God will evaluate us from two perspectives. The first one is the test of one spirit, divine breath, that was conditioned to adopt the divine attributes in one's conduct and in enhancing each person's aptitude, intelligence, and understanding. God breathed His Spirit into humans and thereby gave us the ability to become godly. The second test has to do with the degree to which we actualize our aptitudes. On that day, aptitude and opportunities will be positioned side by side, and the degree to which we actualize the former will be measured by the scale of the latter. Aptitude is spirit, and opportunities are angels. The Quran uses metaphorical language to impress upon us that, one day, we will be held accountable for both the aptitude, spirit, that was breathed into us, as well as how we used the available opportunities, angels. It is a fact that the day on which 
we will have to account for what we have done with our aptitude and opportunities will come. We will have to answer such questions as the following. How far up this ladder of excellence did you climb? Did you honor the spirit that God breathed into you? What did you do with your divine soul? What did you do with your mind? Did you use it for anything other than the mundane daily routine of your earthly life? In conclusion, God has placed many resources at our disposal to help us grow spiritually and attain higher stages of human excellence. It is only natural for us to be asked what we did with them. Did we use these tools to find the human within us and nurture the spirit that God gave us to become godly? That day is a sure reality, so let him who wishes to do so take the path that leads to his Lord. This day is a reality that will arrive. It is not a delusion, a myth, or a tactic to inspire fear in us. The question is whether we will be ready when it arrives. God has shown us the path, given us the ability to discern truth from falsehood, and the ability to become godly. There is no compulsion or coercion in achieving this objective for he has given us the freedom to choose. We may choose to help orphans, be generous, or engage in other benevolent deeds. We have to identify our talents, choose a path, and take advantage of what is around us to actualize our aptitudes. We have warned you of imminent punishment, the day on which every person will see what his own hands, both good and bad deeds, have sent forth, and on which the disbeliever shall exclaim, Oh, would that I were dust, had never been born. Note here that both the verb and the pronoun are plural, for they refer to the totality of the world and the order that governs it. This order is informing us that such an order exists, and that those who violate it will face the consequences. Here, the metaphor of hands is used to warn all people to live a God-conscious life, so that they will not show up empty-handed on the day of resurrection. On that day, all disbelievers who conceal the manifest reality and ignore divine admonitions will wish that they had never been born so that they would not have to suffer such an appalling fate.